Amen. It's true. What we just sang, it, it's so true. God's covenant is eternal. God's covenant stands firm. Not one of God's promises goes unfulfilled. And so this morning, you'll, you'll see the board is quite crowded, but that's because this, this morning, b- before we come to our text, we'll be looking at three promises that God made throughout history. And then in our text, we'll see how those promises are fulfilled. So our, our first reading is from Genesis chapter 12, God's promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your, fa- from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you, and I will curse him who I will, I will I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And he built an altar, uh, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now, many centuries passed between this, this, this passage and our next passage from 2 Samuel 7, but God's promises remained firm and steadfast. First promise we looked at was a promise to Abraham. The second promise we're now looking at is a promise to King David. 2 Samuel 7, we're going to be reading verses verses 1 through 17. 2 Samuel 7, beginning at verse 1. Now it came to pass, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? 
For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rods of men and with the blows of the sons of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to, the, to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And then our final reading before our text is from the little book of Haggai. It's a, it, it's a bit tough to find, but if you go all the way to the end of your Old Testament and then go back Two books, so Malachi's at the end, Zechariah is before Malachi, Haggai is before Zechariah. We're going to be taking a look at the last few verses of Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride on them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. And now flip over just 20 pages or so to the beginning of the gospel according to Matthew. 
And this will serve as our text this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. This, again, beloved, this is the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by by she who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to, uh, carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eliezer, Eliezer begot Matan, and Matan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. So far, the reading from God's holy word. May God add his blessing as it is explained and proclaimed this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, over the course of the next few weeks, over this Sunday, Christmas Day, and the two Sundays following after, We're going to be doing a short series on the birth of Jesus from Matthew's gospel. This Sunday, we'll see how God provides a Messiah from a long line of imperfect fathers. And then on Saturday, on Christmas, we'll see how this Messiah was finally born to his people. And then over the the next two Sundays, we'll see how this Messiah is the hope of all the world, both for Gentiles and for Jews. And throughout this little series, we'll see what God wants us to know about who His chosen Messiah is, 
about what this chosen Messiah came to do, and we'll see what, uh, what God wants us to know about what this chosen Messiah should mean to all of us, regardless of who we are. But we're beginning this morning with what Matthew begins with. We're beginning with part one of what Matthew calls the, the origin story of Jesus the Messiah. In our translation here, it's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. God is telling us here, this is where my chosen Messiah, this is where my anointed one came from. And this, of course, was critically important for Matthew's original audience, the people that Matthew was originally writing to uh, about 2,000 years ago. We, we can pick up clues throughout the book of Matthew that, that this was a book written both to Jews and to Gentiles. Matthew was, was writing this book for the whole church, and, and he's got some important things to tell the whole church. God wanted his people to know, first of all, that Jesus was not an accident of history. Rather, Jesus' coming was something that God had planned from the very beginning. From time to time during the Old Testament, God let his people in on, on some aspects of his plan, as we read in our, in our readings. But Jesus was the full revelation, the fulfillment of the Father's plans for his Son and for his people. So Matthew begins his gospel by telling us that Jesus was not an accident of history. He's telling Jews that this Jesus, this Jesus was the fulfillment of, of everything that God had been doing in the Old Testament. In fact, everything in the Old Testament led up to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament took place so that in time, in God's perfect timing, Jesus would come. But he's not just talking to Jews, he's also talking to Gentiles. He's, he's telling Gentiles that, that this Jesus in whom they've placed their trust didn't just come up out of nowhere. He was not like so many heroes in Greek or Roman mythology that just come about as the gods decide, on the gods' whims. As Paul tells us in Galatians, at the right time, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. God sent his son at the exact right time. Now even today, some modern scholars sometimes suggest that Jesus came to understand that he could very well be Israel's promised Messiah. And so throughout his life, he took on that office, and then he, he, he went around looking for prophecies to fulfill. Other modern scholars will suggest that, that, that after Jesus' death, his disciples or, or the church built up this figure of Jesus the Messiah to fit all those Old Testament promises. But Matthew makes it clear that this Jesus is the one that God promised from the very beginning. This Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's perfect promises. And so we'll see this morning how God provides a perfect Messiah from a line of imperfect fathers. See, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, and we're going to see this several times throughout the course of this sermon, if you're familiar with your Old Testaments, you'll know that the record of God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament is largely a record of failure. God makes a covenant with them, but they do not keep to their side of the covenant. Abraham gets called out of Ur, but he does not provide the perfect faithfulness that God requires. 
The nation of Israel is called up out of Egypt, but even when God gives them their law, they break it. David, as we read, David was called from following the sheep to be the shepherd of God's people Israel, but he, even he, when he reached the heights of his power, he abused that power and he abused his people. And in time, as the centuries go on, the whole nation is so corrupted that God just throws them out of that promised land and He sends them off into exile. And when they come back, when they came back, the people must have wondered what had become of all of God's promises. Well, Matthew answers that question here in our text. Matthew answers all manner of questions here at the beginning of his gospel. And so, once again, I summarize this text in this way. God provides a perfect Messiah from a line of imperfect fathers. And following Matthew's account here, we'll first take a look at how this Messiah was a son of problematic patriarchs. Second, we'll see how he was the son of of rebellious royals. And third, we'll see how he was a son of utter unknowns. Now, Matthew begins his genealogy of Jesus with Abraham. Now, we went back to the book of Genesis to where the story of Abraham begins in chapter 12, and and, and we'd notice that there is a bit of history that Matthew's skipping out on. Uh, Everything from the creation of the world to the birth of Abraham is just left out. Luke includes all this, but Matthew leaves it off. And it's not because Matthew is suggesting that, well, Adam doesn't matter, or maybe Adam didn't exist, or, or anything like that. Rather, it's because Matthew wants to begin with the formation of God's special people, God's covenant people. He begins with Abraham, who was promised that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so Matthew moves on through the line of patriarchs from Abraham to Isaac, who also received those promises in Genesis chapter 26. And then he moves from Isaac to Jacob, who in turn receives the promises given to Abraham when he's at Bethel and and sees that vision of the ladder up to heaven. And then Matthew goes from Jacob to to Judah and his brothers to the very beginning of, of what we could call the nation of Israel. Here, God's promises of of, of a great nation, God's promises to Abraham begin to be realized as Jacob has just this massive family. But it's also here that this genealogy has its first little hiccup, if you will. Matthew inserts something in the text here that we might not have expected if all we were expecting was a list of names. Matthew inserts a reminder here for us, a reminder of a story from Genesis chapter 28. See, Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, he found a wife for one of his sons in the land of Canaan, a woman named Tamar. But Tamar's husband, Judah's son, he was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death. So Judah gives Tamar to his next son, but that son was also a wicked man, so the Lord put him to death as well. And now, and now Judah is seeing a pattern. He's afraid to give Tamar to his next son as he should have. Because he, he sees that, that, that as soon as he gives this woman to his sons, his sons die. It seems not to enter into his mind that it was because of his sons, but he seems to think that it's because of this woman. 
And so he doesn't give Tamar to his third son as he should have once he's old enough. And Tamar realizes this. She knows that Judah is not going to do the right thing. And so, and this is a shocking story, but, but so she dresses up as a prostitute because she knows how Judah is going to react to that. And she's right. And so Judah sleeps with this woman who, that, that, that he's pretty sure is a prostitute, but then, but then his own hypocrisy is unveiled when he tries to have Tamar executed for adultery, the very thing that he was guilty of. And Tamar points out his hypocrisy, and Judah realizes that she, though he is of the covenant community and she is a Canaanite, she is more righteous than he. And then Tamar and Judah, they have two sons, Perez and Zerah. And the older son, Perez, he has a son named Hezron. And Hezron has a son named Ram. And Ram has a son named Aminadab. And Aminadab has a son named Nashon. And Nashon has a son named Salmon. And throughout this time, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but we know that it's happening. Jacob's family has gone down to Egypt and has become a great nation in the land of Egypt. And God has brought that nation back to the land of Canaan, the land promised to Abraham. And it's back in Canaan again that we come to meet another Gentile woman. Not a woman who just pretended to be a prostitute, but a woman who actually was a prostitute. But contrary to whatever we might have expected, it's this woman who proves to be the most God-fearing person in the entire city of Jericho, indeed, indeed in, in the entire land of Canaan. She hears about God, and she hears about what God has done for His people, and she knows that this is a God in whom she can trust. See, if you know anything about Canaanite religion, you know that it was a horrible, horrible religion. It was, it was a religion where the, where the gods demanded tremendous sacrifices from, from their worshippers, even, even child sacrifice. And as, 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 as part of those religious rituals, there was a lot of prostitution that was, that was immediately connected with the worship of those pagan gods. So Rahab knows what a bad god looks like. But when she hears about what God has done for his people Israel, she knows that this is a god in whom she can trust. And, she, and, and so she, like Abraham, she leaves her nation and her culture behind and she takes refuge under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel. And she gets married to this man named Salmon. And they have a, man, uh, they have a son named Boaz. And here at last is, is another name that we recognize. This man, Boaz, has a son by a woman named Ruth. And I'm sure most of us know the story of Ruth. And if we know it, we love it. This woman, Ruth, like Abraham, like Tamar, like Rahab, she leaves her culture and her people and her nation behind, and she follows her mother-in-law to the nation of Israel, where she too finds refuge under the wings of the Lord. And so we've seen in rapid succession that though the people of God were by no means perfect, and this is, this is exemplified especially by Judah's hypocrisy toward Tamar. Though the people of God were problematic, God still brought people from outside into the covenant community. And not only did he bring them into the covenant community, 
He brought them into the family that was going to produce Israel's great king, David. And as Matthew's already told us, it's through David's line that the Messiah is going to be born. Beloved, our God is a God who makes outsiders into insiders. He takes people from rebellion and sin and he brings them into his covenant community. He makes them his people and and he says to them, as it were, you are my people and I am your God and all the blessings that I have given to my people are now yours. And beloved, if God does that, how can we as God's people hold back from doing the very same thing? Our God is a God who takes wanderers and shows them the way. He is a God who takes those who are blind and makes them see. He is a God who takes those who are dead and raises them to life. He is a God who takes those who are rejected and spurned and weak and exhausted and sinful and he makes them his own. He chooses them. He strengthens them. He makes them new. He makes them right with him. He is a God who takes those who have nothing and gives them everything. He is a God who takes rebels and makes them righteous, who takes enemies and makes them friends, who takes the the servants of demon gods and brings them into his sacred courts, into his sanctuary. He takes prostitutes and makes them pure. He takes deeply problematic people and he perfects them to be a people for his own possession. Beloved, never make the mistake of thinking that your neighbors are too far gone to be saved. Tamar wasn't, Judah wasn't, Ruth wasn't, Rahab wasn't, you weren't. And at the same time, don't undervalue the covenant community to which you belong. This church is not perfect. Nothing against this church in particular, but but there is no perfect church. This church is not perfect, and your families are not perfect. In fact, there are some times when, when the church actually enters into competition with the world for who can be the most hateful and sinful, and at times... It looks like it it would just be better to to, to stay off by ourselves to avoid the sinners and the hypocrites in God's covenant community. But look at what God does here with this line of imperfect patriarchs. He doesn't just bring people to himself to have a one-on-one relationship with them. He brings people into his covenant community into the Old Testament church, even when it looks like that is the worst place to be. And then through this covenant community, as problematic as it certainly is, he brings about his greatest plan for the salvation of sinners. But we're still a far way off from seeing that plan fulfilled in our text passage. So so uh, Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse, he has a son I'm sure we've all heard about. He has a son named David. And it's with David that we then move on from the problematic patriarchs to a line of rebellious royals. David, as as we can read in 1 Samuel, David was a man after God's own heart. He, he, He was a man who had a heart 
that looked like God's. He, he had a heart like God's heart. And, and every Sunday we come together and we sing his songs of praise to God. And we see that. We see, well, this is a man that points us to God. This was a man who knew God. This was a man who understood the heart of God and who prayed and praised in full knowledge of what God is like. But that's not what Matthew points out to us. He doesn't point out to us how good a king David was, and he's not denying that. But he doesn't point out to us how good David was as a king. Rather, he points out to us his most glaring and most obvious act of rebellion. See, God raised David. We read this in 2 Samuel 7. God raised David to the throne of the nation of Israel, and then God gave him victory over all of his enemies around him. But though God was faithful to David in everything, over time, David grew proud. Though everything that he had, though everything the nation of Israel had, had been given to them by God, he began to act like the pagan kings and the nations around him. He began to act like a pagan king. He began to believe that the kingdom did not belong to God, the kingdom belonged to him. And so one day he climbs up to the roof of his palace, and he looks down at his capital city, and he sees something he wants. He sees a woman named Bathsheba, the wife of one of his most loyal soldiers, the wife of a man who had, like Rahab and Tamar and Ruth, come from a foreign country. Uriah was a Hittite. He came from a foreign country to unite himself with the people of Israel. Uriah had realized the emptiness of his former way of life, and he had united himself with the covenant community. But though he was now loyal to God and was now loyal to David, David was not loyal to him. He saw something he wanted. He saw Uriah's wife, and he took her. While Uriah was off with the army, David takes his wife in his arms and into his bed, and as a result, Bathsheba becomes pregnant by David. And so David's in trouble. If people find out that he got this woman pregnant, they will not think too highly of him. And so, in order to protect his own reputation, David, David calls Uriah back from the battlefield and tries to convince him to spend the night with his wife. But Uriah, Uriah, because of his intense loyalty to David and, and his intense loyalty to his, to his fellow soldiers, to the covenant community, he refuses. And, and he sleeps outside all night. And the next day, David tries to get him drunk so that he'll go home and sleep with his wife. But Uriah is a far more righteous and loyal man than David in this instance. And so as an evil, evil reward for Uriah's integrity, David has Uriah killed. He sends him back to the battlefield with a letter telling his general, telling Joab, to have him fight in an area where he's sure to be killed by the enemy. And Uriah dies, and David takes she who was his wife. David, Israel's greatest king, David takes the wife of a man who's never been anything less than loyal, righteous, and faithful. Though Israel was at its geopolitical height, this looks an awful lot like a real low point in this genealogy. But that's not all that Matthew is telling us here. At the same time, Matthew is, sing uh, uh, is singling out David for something else. 
Yes, he points out that David sinned in a dramatic fashion, but he was still the king. David is the only person in this genealogy to have both his name and his title listed. He's not just David, he's David the king. And this is important. David was the king of Israel. He was God's chosen man. But as God promised in 2 Samuel 7, he was going to have a greater son. A greater king would come from his line. A man who would have a heart like God's, but who would not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. A man who would have all authority in God's kingdom, but who would not use that authority to promote himself and take whatever he wanted. On the contrary, this greater king than David would surrender even what rightly belonged to himself. He would take on guilt and shame that he did not earn, and he would pay for every ounce of it. But we're not there yet. Long before Christ is born, we're presented with a long line of kings, some good kings, some bad kings. David and Bathsheba's second son is named Solomon. And God gives Solomon wisdom and might and incredible wealth. But when Solomon becomes great in the eyes of the world, pride again, pride takes control and he leaves God behind. And his son Rehoboam does the same. Even though his kingdom has been greatly diminished, so does Rehoboam's son Abijah. But Abijah's son Asa and, and, and Asa's son Jehoshaphat, they don't follow after the way of their father and grandfather. No, they bring the people back to God. But after them, after Jehoshaphat is dead, another rebel, Jehoram, who was so wicked that he murdered all of his brothers as soon as he came to the throne, he comes and sits on David's throne. But he's again contrasted with the next king mentioned, Uzziah. Uzziah, a man who started out well like Solomon, but who grew proud when he grew strong and was humbled by God. And then Uzziah has a son, Jotham, who, who served God with a whole heart. But then a righteous king again leaves the throne to an unrighteous son, Ahaz. And Ahaz, far from serving the one true God, he runs after foreign demon gods. He even, he even burns his children alive as sacrifices. But then again, Ahaz, he's replaced by Hezekiah, another king who is loyal to the Lord. But then from Hezekiah comes the most horribly wicked king in all of Judah's history. While he's king, while Manasseh is king, the streets of Jerusalem run red with blood. At one point, he even sacrifices one of his own sons to a demon god of his choosing. But then, but then God sends judgment, and Manasseh turns from his incredible evil, and he repents. He repents, but judgment has already been decided against Judah and against the house of David. Though Manasseh had turned back to God, his son, when he comes to the throne, he goes right back to the former sins of his father. But he's only king for two years before his own servants assassinate him, and he's replaced with one of the brightest spots in Judah's history. He's replaced by good king Josiah. And Josiah knows, he realizes that judgment has been decided by God against Judah. But still, he is so zealous for the Lord that he does all he can to bring the nation back to their covenant God. 
But the best he can do just isn't enough. When he dies in battle, his sons take over one after another, and they're all wicked, wicked men. And so one after the other, God takes them off the throne, and in time, he brings the whole nation of Judah into exile, into Babylon, back to where Abraham's story began so many centuries before. This second list begins with David the king, but it ends here with Jeconiah and his brothers, sitting in a land that is not their own, slaves to those who have invaded their land and taken them captive, and and, and sitting there in exile, they must have wondered what had become of David's line. And more importantly, they must have wondered what had become of God's promises, if you want to read a reflection on that, take a look uh, during lunch devotions or so on at Psalm 89, where the people of Judah meditate on God's promises and the fact that it looks like those promises have been forgotten and left behind. But even though, we know that even though they had been left in the dust in Babylon, though they had been reduced to nothing, God's plans still stood firm. God does not budge. If he promises, he will always deliver. And so his promises stood firm, and the exiles came back from Babylon. And and when they came back from Babylon, he gave his promise all over again. He promised Zerubbabel, the leader of, of the returned exiles, that he would still bring his plans to fruition through David's line. God's promises stand tall even when the power of men lessens more and more. Following Zerubbabel, other men came, other sons came, but they were not made governor like like Zerubbabel had been. The the line of David that, that was so prominent and so powerful before, it retreats into the shadows, it retreats into obscurity. In in fact, from from Zerubbabel's son to Joseph's father, we really know nothing about these men. We don't know if they were wealthy or poor. We don't know if they were good or bad. We don't know if they clung to God's promises or if they turned aside to other gods. We don't know anything about these men. And so King Jeconiah begot Shealtiel. Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud. Abiud begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Adzor, Adzor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, Achim begot Elias, Eliezer, Eliezer begot Matan, and Matan begot Joseph, and begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary. And the promise of a seed to Abraham, the promise of a son to David, the promise of a signet ring to Zerubbabel, they stand. But, but so what? For hundreds of years, the people of the promise, they had languished in exile, in captivity, oppressed by Babylon, then oppressed by Persia, then oppressed by Greece, then oppressed by Rome, and no Jewish king sat on the throne in Jerusalem, and no Jewish army kept the peace, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited. Until, to this list of utter unknowns, to this list of rebellious royals, to this list of problematic patriarchs, the fulfillment 
of centuries of waiting comes to be in the womb of Joseph's wife, Mary. And unknown, even to these unknowns, a tiny heart begins to flutter. And tiny arms and legs begin to grow and a little itty-bitty brain begins to develop as the last name on the list was given flesh. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations and the people waited and God worked. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations and the people waited and God worked. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations and the people waited and God worked. Until from this line of imperfect fathers, the perfect son was brought into the world. And all of the promises began to be fulfilled. And all of the patient waiting saw the fruit. And Israel's hope and consolation, the hope of all the earth, the desire of all the nations came. And Emmanuel came to his people. Amen.